Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the world around us, but a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. The Hedge School, then, is about building a new folk culture, but one which is deeply rooted in the native traditions of Ireland and the British Isles. It's about practical guidance for living well, living authentically, and above all, connecting with our places and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to hark back to or try to recreate the past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. Many of our podcasts bring you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. Between those conversations, in this Mythlines series of podcasts, I offer you my own reflections on the mythic imagination and on listening to the dreaming land, usually with a story or two cast into the bubbling cauldron for good measure. This very wonderful book, Wisdom of the Mythtellers, Canadian scholar Sean Kane declares that myth is the power of place speaking, which makes perfect sense to me. I've always believed that myth is inseparable from the land, that myth comes from the land and springs directly out of it. So often we seem to imagine that it comes from inside our heads, that, that we make it up. But that's just part of the modern illusion that everything is about us that what goes on inside human heads is the centre of everything. But myth isn't an act of human creation. It's an act of co-creation between us and the dreaming soul of this animate earth. Myth is what happens when we fall into the land's dreaming, when we've truly learned to listen to the holy animate world around us. When we catch the faint echoes of the speech of mountains, or when we can't get the tune that the river was singing this morning out of our heads all day. When to say hello to a crow in the street becomes just as important, if not more so, than greeting a human neighbour. I remember that state of being when I was a child. I remember speaking to stones and being quite confident that they were speaking back to me. For most of the years of my childhood, we had no functioning television, but we had a tiny garden, and even on the coastline of that heavily industrial part of the northeast of England, we had access to fields and to sand dunes. And when I'd grown tired of reading the books I was allowed to extract from the library round the corner, I'd make up my own stories, full of mythical characters based on the animals and plants that inhabited those strange industrial edgelands where I lived. There were no computer screens then, no smartphones. There was no piped entertainment. There were books, and there was our imagination. What else did we need? Looking back at my teenage years, after we'd moved south to a city in the Midlands, I'm grateful now for the fact that we didn't have a car either. My friends all lived on the other side of the city, and the lack of car, and the fact that bus fares were expensive, meant that I would creep home through the dark streets late at night, practising becoming invisible, and walking without being noticed a very practical magic. 
and in the hour it took me to walk home from my best friend's house, I'd have made my way through a city filled with magical beings who haunted the shadowy alleys and the medieval streets of the old part of town. These beings and their stories didn't come out of my head. They came out of the stone walls and the hidden river that flows beneath the streets of that city. They presented themselves to my always vivid imagination like a casket of fine jewels. All of that, of course, was before I learned that imagination was nothing more than just making things up, and that certain things were allowed to be real while other things weren't. Until, many years and misadventures later, the great wheel turned again, and I remembered that the world of the imagination is just as real as any other, that in fact it's part of the fabric of reality itself. A few years ago, before I'd properly come to understand that all the wisdom I'd ever need could be found in my own native traditions, I followed a Sufi path for a while. And during that time, I discovered and delved deeply into the work of Henri Corbin, a French philosopher and expert in ancient Sufi mysticism. Corbin used the term mundus imaginalis to describe a particular order of reality that's referred to in ancient Sufi texts. These texts tell us that between the physical world and the world of the mind or the intellect lies another world, the world of the image, or the mundus imaginalis, a world that is absolutely just as real as they are. The material world which we take as real is in fact totally enveloped by a spiritual reality which influences or, or perhaps even determines it. And this idea always struck me as remarkably similar to the idea of the other world in the Gaelic, uh, Irish and Scottish traditions I grew up with, that world is filled with archetypal characters and imagery which profoundly influences our everyday reality, to the extent that, if we don't treat it and its inhabitants with the respect they deserve, the old stories tell us that we can run the risk of our everyday world becoming a wasteland. But those are stories for another day. In a sense, the Mundus Imaginalis is also comparable to, or maybe perhaps an aspect of, the Anima Mundi, the world soul. The reality of the Mundus Imaginalis communicates itself to human beings through images, and so the act of imagining then arguably becomes an act of reconnection to the anima mundi itself. The Mundus Imaginalis is the place of all religious and transcendent experience. It's where synchronicities and creative leaps happen. It's where the experiences that we call psychic come from. This world is the source of dreams and other visionary experiences, including the places that we imagine we visit during deep meditation. The Mundus Imaginalis can be perceived by what Corbin called the psycho-spiritual senses, the imaginative or imagining consciousness, and he used the term active imagination to refer to a method of imaginative exploration which allows the interaction between the physical world and the Mundus Imaginalis to take place. James Hillman, the founder of Archetypal Psychology, which focuses on the many myths and archetypes which shape our inner lives, was heavily influenced by Corbin. In Hillman's worldview, imagining is critical to understanding soul or psyche, and not just our own psyche, but the psyche or soul of the world. 
because an important tenet of archetypal psychology is that psyche is not in the individual person, but rather each individual person is in psyche. Psyche is everywhere. It permeates us. And so, as Hillman puts it, it's not we who imagine, but we who are imagined. In other words, we're not the ones in the driving seat, much as many centuries of Western philosophy has indoctrinated us with the perception that we are. We are imagined, we are dreamed by the world around us. We are dreamed and imagined by the land. And myth is part of this dreaming and imagining. Myth is not only the power of place speaking, it's the power of the whole earth speaking. Myth, story and archetype, these are the tools that the land, the earth, uses to communicate with us. That's why so many myths and fairy tales are about negotiating with the powers of nature and the land. But that's another story for another day and another podcast. All of this is why so much of my own teaching is focused on developing relationships with our places, the places where our feet are planted right now, today, whether these are the places that we plan to stay forever or not. The myths, stories and archetypes which spring from those places and which worm their way into our consciousness are the tools that our places use to communicate with us. The earth speaks to us through myth and story and through the archetypal characters who appear in them. So myth is a bridge to the land, it's a bridge to this earth and it's a bridge to the anima mundi, the soul of the world. In this human-centered world that's lost not only its heart, but has lost its soul, we need myth more than ever. We need to turn away from the shining screens that hypnotize us and turn back to our active imaginations, engaging with myth and image and dream. What we need today is a mythical resistance, a resistance of the imagination. If we engage with our places, if we immerse ourselves in their myths and stories, then in some sense we're stoking the fires of communication with the anima mundi. We're keeping it alive and thriving through these acts of co-creation. We're facilitating it in its own process of becoming, a process of which we are very, very much a part. To be firmly anchored in your place then is to know the landscape around you as alive with image and symbol. A year ago, I moved to a new piece of land here in Connemara in the west of Ireland, and one of the ways that I've been engaging with my own place recently is through my garden. Here's how I described that garden in my most recent book, The Enchanted Life. Home is a building, but home for the most fortunate among us might be a garden too, though if you had asked me when we first moved to our new house in Connemara in the early spring of 2017, I would have told you that it was surrounded not by a garden, but by a bramble thicket. And there I sat, like some wistful ageing briar rose and a sea of thorns, and sorcelled not in a palace, but in the run-down, long-neglected grounds of a dilapidated 1970s bungalow. But after watching through weeks of relentless growing and greening, I would have told you, by midsummer, that I lived in a wood. It is a small wood, covering less than half of a strangely shaped one-acre plot, but it is a wood, nevertheless. 
There are silver ladies in my wood, tall, stately birches, their ageing bark deeply scored with black. Birch is the first tree in the old Oum tree alphabet of Ireland, the tree of beginnings, of rebirth. There is willow, too, and holly, and a scattering of baby rowans fetched in on some fitful breeze. This is a witching wood, dark green ivy wrapped around hawthorn, white-faced bindweed snaking through the brambles which guard the threshold to the woodworld beyond. It is a healing wood, too, with yarrow for your wounds, mint for your digestion, sweet violet to ease the breaking of your heart. I am in love with my wood, the night calls of the stalking fox and early morning encounters with a badger at the gate. It is haunted by magpie and crow. It's a breeding ground for robins and goldfinch. Four hives of honeybees work hard at its edges, and half a dozen hens scratch their way determinedly round the clearings. We tread carefully on the winding path that we forged through it because of the clouds of speckled wood butterflies which dart up from the wild flowers just inches away from our feet. We tread even more carefully off that path because everywhere we look we see baby hollies, baby rowans, baby birches and a very occasional pine, a remarkable effusion of new and continuing life. In the beginning, the stories say, was the wood when I was but a young lass, said the Kalich, the divine old woman of myth who made and shaped this land, the ocean was a forest full of trees. This wood into which I, seed-like, have blown is on its own path of becoming, a path which grows thicker and greener with every year that it is not cleared or managed, for this place was not always a wood. I've seen photographs of it from a decade or so ago, when it was a neatly manicured, well-kept garden with a few sedate trees. But abandoned for years to its own devices, it has grown into a wood, and I am reminded of the words of my wise friend, activist and garden designer Mary Reynolds, who told me once that all land, left to its own devices, wants to become wood. So this year we're looking at that abandoned garden come bramble thicket and we're wondering, literally, what to make of it. But wondering as well what it wants to become. We're listening for ways to bring our own wants and needs a bit more closely into alignment with the plans that this untidy patch of land has for its own becoming. We'll for sure retain its wild edges because the greatest wisdom always emerges from the edges and the hedges and will retain its wild heart, a portion of that bramble thicket that's right in the centre and which is much loved by birds and other wildlife, and I think in which the badger hides some nights. But in other parts of the garden we're hoping for compromise, finding room for vegetable and fruit beds and a polytunnel, for a native wood containing trees from the old Oum alphabet, and for a fire pit and a leafy hut that'll be created from living willow. Working with this garden is an act of creative imagination. It's an act of the mythic imagination, because this garden is inhabited by mythical characters from my native Irish tradition. Aramid lives there, among the herb beds. Aramid was the herbalist daughter of Dian Sect, the healer of the Tuatha Dé Danann, the divine or semi-divine tribe who once ruled Ireland. To cut the story short, after 365 herbs grew on the grave of her brother Mirch, who had been killed by their father, D. 
and kecht. Ahmed spread her cloak and uprooted those herbs and arranged them according to their properties. But Dian Kecht came along and mixed them all up again, so that their proper healing qualities have largely been forgotten today. My garden is also inhabited by St. Gobnet, the patron saint of bees. She hovers benignly over our beehives. Gobnet's story is a story about finding your place and one which resonates deeply with me now that I've finally found my way back to my heartland of Connemara after a 22-year exile. Gobnet was an Irish saint who lived in the early 6th century. She was born in County Clare, and when she was older, she fled a family feud, taking refuge in Inisor in the Aran Islands. While she was there, an angel appeared to her and told her that she must leave because this was not the place of her resurrection. She should, the angel said, look for a place where she would find nine white deer grazing. So Gobnet wandered through Waterford, Kerry and Cork. First she saw three white deer in Clondrahead and County Cork, and she followed them to Ballymacira, where she saw six more. But it wasn't till she arrived in Ballyvorney, in the southwest corner of Cork, that Gobnet saw nine white deer grazing all together. That was where she settled and founded her monastic community. That was the place of her resurrection, and there she remained a beekeeper and a woman who's now thought of as a patron saint of bees. And there's a third presence, at least a third, perhaps more will appear, in my enchanted garden. A wonderfully archetypal character called Old Crane Woman. An old crane woman is a perfect example of those acts I've been talking about of co-creation and of mythical communication between people and the land. Let me tell you her story in this brief extract from The Enchanted Life. Until I moved back to Connemara in 2017, I lived for three years in a tiny old riverside cottage in the hills of Donegal in the far northwest of Ireland. We had moved there from the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, where I had immersed myself in a land which was steeped in the mythology of the Calliach, the wild and powerful old woman of Gaelic mythology who created and shaped the land. Just as they are in Ireland, mountains and other place names all around Scotland are named after her. She's imminent in the land itself. There are many, many stories about the Calliach, which in that part of Scotland also relate to her sister or in some stories, her alter ego, Bride, who presides over the light half of the year, just as the Calliach rules over the dark. Directly in front of our island home was a long, low mountain which had the shape of a reclining woman. As I learned more and more about the Calliach's mythology and her association with high and rocky places, I began to imagine that she was present in the mountain and to make up my own stories about how that came to be. The Kaliach mountain dominated our village and the headland, and as I walked the land each day through all the difficult times we had there, I spoke to her as if she were an old friend. Although much of Ireland is also steeped in the mythology of the Kaliach, in the part of Donegal where we lived I could find no local stories about her, and no specific landmarks named after her. I felt curiously lonely and utterly cast adrift. Where was the Kaliach in this place? Where might I find her? And how could I possibly belong to a place where there was no Kaliach, whose stories had claimed me so powerfully and dominated my imagination for the better part of four years?
On the hill behind our Donegal cottage there was a wood, and in the wood there was a heronry. Every day we'd see herons flying along the small river which tumbled across stepping stones at the bottom of our garden, and it wasn't that far to the sea. And sometimes in the early morning, as I walked with the dogs along the lane which led up to the high bog, I'd see a heron standing on a stone in the middle of the fast-flowing river, the still point in the turbulent birth of every new day. When you live in close proximity to such beautiful, iconic creatures, and especially if, like me, you're immersed in myth and story, they not only capture your daytime imagination, but begin to infiltrate your dreams. In the Irish language, the word for the grey heron is cor. It also happens to be the word for crane. This is because, just around the time that the Eurasian crane became extinct in Ireland, the similar-looking grey heron arrived to fill its ecological niche. Heron and crane, then, are interchangeable in Irish mythology, and in those old stories, crane is a powerful and liminal bird. She haunts the thresholds where water, land and air intermingle. She guards the treasures of the other world, and she's a guide to those who wish to travel there. Perhaps because she stands upright, tall and thin, she's associated with shape-shifting in the feminine form. And indeed, most likely for this reason, eating a heron's flesh was once forbidden. The most famous story about a crane is the story of beautiful Aoife, who was turned into a crane by a jealous rival. She went then to live in the house of the god Mananan Maclear. When Aoife died 200 years later, Mananan made a magical crane bag from her skin. And now, surrounded as I seemed to be by herons, I read as much about them and their crane counterparts as I could. They're associated, I discovered, with longevity. In some of the old stories, they're connected, too, to hags and old women. Thinking about this, as I walked along the lane one winter morning at dawn, I stood and watched as a heron flew up from the river bank, shrieking. There was something oddly hag-like about her call, and all of a sudden a character popped into my head. Old crane woman came to me, part woman, part bird. By the time I arrived home she had taken possession of me, springing directly from this place I lived in, rising fully formed out of my river, I had found the Kaliach in another form. Sometimes, if you happen to be walking along a track within reach of water at dusk or dawn, you'll see her there, old crane woman, a tall, gangly figure wrapped in a mid-grey cloak. Her legs and her arms are unusually long and seem to bend in odd directions. Sometimes you'll find her standing in the river, still as can be on one leg. You'll know her by her long nose, her frayed grey and white dress, and her long, thin arms with the sharp, sticking-out elbows. Don't startle her. She'll be gone in a flash. Throughout that December, I wrote a series of fragments about Old Crane Woman and published them on my blog. Grey Heron Nights, I called them. A Celtic antidote to the seven mythical Greek Halcyon days which bridged the winter solstice. She seemed to have her own voice, her own rhythm, incantatory, the rhythm of place, or the power of place speaking. 
old crane woman is thinking, sitting on her nest, thinking, thinking. What is she thinking about? She's thinking about beauty. Beauty, you love, old crane woman. And old crane woman hears you, yes, she does. See how sharply she turns her head? You think she's ugly then, that old crane woman? With her sagging skin and knobbly knees, hair all matted and tattered and grey. You think you know what beauty is? The blandness of youthful skin, the softness of plump young flesh, the innocence of bright young eyes. You go right on there then. You go on and ask old crane woman. Ask old crane woman about beauty and she'll laugh out loud. Can you hear old grain woman laugh? You want to know what beauty is, boy? Look over there now. Look at old crane woman. See how she rises there from her nest, stretching out her bony old arms, arching up her long thin neck. See how she stands, how still, how still. See how her skin shines in the starlight, skin that is thin, transparent and worn. You want to know what beauty is, boy? Look again at old crane woman. Listen to old crane woman's cracked, croaking song. Beauty is a body bowed from the weight of a life fully lived. Beauty is hair bleached in the light of a life fully loved. Beauty is the angular bony edges of a life fully risked. Look into old crane woman's cavernous black eyes and you'll learn a thing or two about beauty. Listen to old crane woman's song, you'll learn a thing or two about beauty. Listen to old crane woman laugh in the long cold dark. Listen to her weep in the fragile light of dawn. Listen to her joy in the pain of giving birth. Are you learning now about beauty? You think she cares what you think? You think she cares, old crane woman? Old crane woman is hatching an egg. She's the watcher in the dark, the keeper of the tales. She's the guardian of the gate, the crystal in the cave. Old crane woman was here before you, and she'll be here after you. You pay your respects. So that's old crane woman, and she's as real to me as you are. The figure of old crane woman was new in the ever-transforming mythology of that particular corner of Donegal, but she emerged in the only way that is meaningful, in the ways that I've been talking about. She emerged not just out of my head, but directly out of the place itself and the creatures that inhabit it. Old crane woman occupies this space somewhere between the grey heron, the river and my own imagination. Happily, she came along with me to Connemara, to this strange wild scrap of garden bordered by another fast-flowing stream, which is also haunted by herons. Old Crane Woman is an act of co-creation, then. And this is how the land draws us into relationship with it. This is how we build belonging. This is how we build a mythical resistance to the disenchantment of the world. A resistance of the imagination. Thank 
you all for listening to the Surgical Podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow our work at the Hedge School, where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. It's about dreaming, and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you're able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.